Weighing Machine was created to help you, the financial advisor or investor, reach your long-term financial goals. Each episode, your hosts, Rusty Vanneman and I, Robin Murray, cut through the market glamour to find the time-tested principles that help investors succeed. The Weighing Machine is inspired by the classic investing saying attributed to Benjamin Graham. The stock market is a voting machine in the short term and a weighing machine over the long run. In other words, emotion and expectations drive short-term market movement, but fundamentals and valuations determine returns over time. Welcome to The Weighing Machine. Enjoy, and as always, let us know what you think. On the podcast today, why should I stay invested in the stock market with the recession around the corner? How to answer that question and more. We'll get some tips on how to communicate effectively with clients and how to answer some of their toughest questions. That's with our guest, Paula Week, Vice President and Senior Portfolio Manager at Commerce Trust Company. Welcome to The Weighing Machine. I'm Rusty Vanneman. And I'm Robin Murray. Okay, let's start with a look at the markets. What are you watching for at the moment, Rusty? Well, we're off to a pretty good start for the year when we're recording this, but you know what? Investor sentiment still remains really negative. We have inflation concerns. Are we going to get a recession? We have higher interest rates. You know, when should we get back into the market if investors stepped out? All these are top concerns and for good reasons. Today's podcast will answer some of those concerns with somebody who answers those questions every day. She's a repeat guest and somebody we used to work with a while ago, and we miss her, Paula Week. All right. Well, let's bring her in. Paula Week is Vice President and Senior Portfolio Manager at Commerce Trust Company in Kansas City. Paula, welcome back to The Weighing Machine. Robin, Rusty, thanks for having me. It's good to see you guys and, and talk with you guys. Yeah. This should be a lot of fun. Well, you know, I think I should probably go back and count this. You know, the history of the weighing machine. I mean, there is you on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts, there's a history, but our podcast is actually longer than that. I would bet that Paula has been the most frequent guest on the podcast, but we have new traditions here. And the first tradition is we need a walk-up song. So we need some song we can hear in our imagination in the background as you come up to this interview. <laughs> so my my walk-up song is Lose Yourself by Eminem. We've never had that one yet. Nice. It'll be a good one to add. So the first lyrics are, look, if you had one shot or one opportunity to seize everything you ever wanted, one moment, would you capture it or just let it slip? I used to play this before the CFA exams. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, you know, a long time ago, I think that this has changed, but you only had one shot, you know, a year to pass the CFA exams. And so that would pump me up. But it's on my playlist. It's just, it's such a good song. I'm a pretty mellow person, but once it comes on, it just makes me want to just throw around a bunch of weight, run really fast and be really competitive. That was the pump up song for, I think, almost all of my kids' youth soccer game. Really? We played that song on the drive in the minivan to those games. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's so good. I still love it, clearly. <laughs> That's great. All right. So, Paula, of course, you started your career at what was then CLS Investments, where we all used to work together and then became part of Orion. Tell the audience more about your background and your new position at Commerce Trust. Yeah. So, I was, I, I really grew up at, at Orion or CLS, essentially. So, started off as an equity trader and transitioned into portfolio management. So, 
became an associate portfolio manager there at CLS and then just kind of learned the ropes. And then eventually at some point, I was approached to start a team of, of analysts to help support the portfolio managers. And so my title changed to manager of investment research. And then as time went by, you know, I became co-manager on several of the proprietary mutual funds. And then I ran some of the strategies for high net worth investors. And so had a lot of different hats, which was great. Spent a lot of time behind the screens. So I spent 13 years with CLS and they were fantastic years. But I was approached by Commerce Trust Company and it was going to be more of a client facing position. And that's one area where I felt like it would be really rewarding to just connect on a personal level with, with clients and get kind of out from behind the screens more. And so I kind of took a leap of faith and it's been a really rewarding, good fit at this point. So Thanks. I manage probably about half a billion in assets and client assets and uh, work with high net worth individuals and some institutions. But yeah, it's been good. Pearl, tell us more about Commerce Trust. What's their footprint and what's their investment philosophy? So Commerce Trust is a division of Commerce Bank. And so we've been around since 1906. And so we're kind of like the one-stop shop, full service. So if a client wants to go somewhere and get access to financial planning, investment management, private banking, estate planning, you know, tax advice, we're one shop for all of that. And so essentially, I mean, we're the 19th largest bank managed trust company, and we administer roughly around 60 billion in assets. And so our headquarters are in Missouri, and we serve clients in 50 states, 25 countries. And then we have locations in Missouri, Kansas, Illinois, Oklahoma, and Texas, and we keep expanding. Awesome. Well, before we dive more into your position and kind of what you do on a day-to-day basis, and hit some of these questions that you're getting asked by investors. Could you give us a quick market outlook from Commerce? So I would like to make the outlook quick, just because I think that we've all been hearing a lot about market outlooks. And to be honest, nobody really knows what's going to happen. It's interesting. I was rereading the outlook from like JP Morgan and Morgan Stanley and a bunch of others, including our own. And, you know, I think we we're all expecting, you know, the market to be a little bit slower, but to have positive returns. And we were just completely blindsided by all the outside geopolitical events that happened. And so, so I always like to take these outlooks with a grain of salt, but, you know, I think given where the Fed has been aggressive and has continued to hike rates here over the next couple of meetings by maybe a quarter percent or so, it's really going to depend on inflation and jobs. So, you know, our probability of a recession, probably the second half of next year's has gone up here in 2023. But overall, you know, even if we don't go into recession, I think we can kind of expect something somewhat similar, a little bit more volatility. You know, we certainly could retest the lows that we've already experienced, but, you know, recession or not, you know, typically, even if we do go into recession, that's such a scary, ugly word for investors, it seems like. But a lot of times, you know, the years after a recession, the trough, you experience some of your most outsized market returns. So overall, we're expecting the year to end in positive territory in the equity market. All right, well, let's get into your position at Commerce. First, can you kind of describe a typical day for you? So my day looks different day to day, depending on if I'm meeting with clients or if I'm spending the day doing trades. But I try to keep my mornings pretty consistent. So I'll go in and I'll kind of evaluate what's happened in the broader markets. I'll evaluate the performance of 
all of our different securities, all the different stocks that we own and our strategies, the mutual funds, exchange traded funds, just to kind of keep tabs on everything. And then, of course, I run reports to determine, you know, as far as cash levels and bonds maturity. I've never talked so much about bonds as I have in the last year. So we've been purchasing a lot more bonds for clients as of late. So just kind of running those maturity reports and making sure I'm staying on top of that stuff. But then really, if I'm meeting with clients, it's just you're kind of creating kind of a customized book for them because you go over the performance and positioning and outlook with each of our clients. But then you're also trying to figure out based off the client, how best to tell the story. You know, some people will get bored if if you give them all these like fancy charts with intricate details. And so sometimes I'll choose some colorful pictures for some clients, or I'm always thinking about how will I be able to relay the story to this particular client? And then some days I'm trading. Some days, you know, the analyst will issue a, a trade to buy or sell certain securities. And so I'll spend most of my day trading. So it kind of varies, but it's some kind of combination of those things. Okay. So we too also have questions about bonds. We'll be asking them later, but you're kind of talking about just a moment there about client communications. And so you've been talking to a lot of clients over a lot of years. So how do you think client communication has changed for investment managers over the years? So I think that there's been a lot more emphasis on being able to really kind of read and understand our client to be able to adapt to their emotions. And I think that, you know, kind of creating a communication strategy that is kind of consistent with what their personality and their emotional type, I think that that's really important. And so I think that there's definitely been a lot more awareness over the years. And I think over the last year with the market volatility, I think a lot of people could take their clients for granted, the clients that have been with them for years or decades. And, you know, for instance, if they say, you know, if you on a regular basis met with them once a year and you think, oh, you know, they're used to this kind of market environment. I don't take it for granted. I think more frequent touches have been crucial. And I even had this happen to me this year with one of my clients where, you know, she's been with us for years and always have an excellent meeting. She's not completely emotional. And so didn't really think anything was wrong, but I hadn't reached out to her probably as frequently as I should have. And another advisor had her ear and she left. So I think that that's definitely kind of a warning for advisors in general is make sure regardless of historical approaches with your clients, you think you know them, make sure you're reaching out to them frequently. I think that that's been a big change. Do you make any adaptions depending on how sophisticated your clients are in terms of the markets? So I've been thinking about the word sophistication. Sometimes I don't like to use it because I have very sophisticated clients that just are not interested in the market. Mm. They're very sophisticated or they have you know, clients that are. And so it really kind of depends on their interest level. Because if I showed them all the economic graphs and charts that I get excited about, their eyes start glazing over, right? And so I'll try to show the ones that are a little bit less interested, more pictures, like a graph that actually the the picture just kind of tells the story instead of showing them all of this data or all these data points. And so that's resonated really well. And then with my other clients that get really into the details, they want to learn and they just thrive off of, you know, 
looking at all the economic data. I'll give them a lot more complicated charts and tables and things with those kind of numbers because they seem to really just soak that information in. So it kind of depends on the client, but yeah, I'll typically adapt that information depending on their interest level. When you're at CLS, you help create a lot of really useful one-pagers for client communications. You have a lot of ideas, you produce them, you use them. So I'm curious now after these years, when it comes to resources, which charts, tables, and tools have worked really well for you in client communications? And by the way, if you've got links to any of this stuff, we'll put them in the show notes. I know advisors and investors love to see favorite charts. So what are your favorites right now you use in client communications? One of my top favorites, and we used to use this at CLS, is reasons not to invest in the stock market. And this has saved, in my opinion, it's saved so many clients' financial outcomes just because a lot of people, especially if they have cash on the sidelines or if they've never invested before, and then all of a sudden you're walking into all this volatility and clients are kind of like, oh, this time is different. This time it's unprecedented. We've never seen anything like this. And if you actually go back and so what this piece shows, and I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to link to it or not, but I know that you can even Google this. And just the concept is that you go all the way back to like the 1920s and you show per calendar year why clients or investors do not invest in the market each calendar year. And there were some pretty powerful reasons back then that that seemed like the whole system was just going to be broken. It was all going to be upheaved. And so overall, you had the Cuban Missile Crisis, you know, you had the Watergate scandal, you had all these different events that happen, but then you just show them the long-term chart of S&P 500 and how that has prevailed. And obviously, intuitively, that chart is just gone straight up very steeply, obviously with little bumps in the road, but that's all they look like now is little bumps over that long time frame. And so just the resilience of the stock market. And then they look at that, a client will look at that and say, wow. And they'll even start reading some of the years going, wow, those years are even worse than I think what we're experiencing. I'm like, yep, we're going to get through this. The best time to invest is always now, in my opinion. So. Yep. Watergate's why I stayed out of the markets in the early (laughs) seventies. How'd that work out for you? (laughs) All right. Well, Paul, so you've also had a lot of experience, of course, working with advisors. So from all of those cumulative years, what are some of the qualities you think that make a good advisor? So I think being able to know your client, know your client when you're on the phone or in a room with your client, being able to read your client. If you start getting the sense that they're starting to feel nervous or apprehensive or they're confused about a certain topic, being able to read that and kind of pause because so many people will have a spiel in their head. Exactly. And they just want to get out that spiel, no matter what they don't adapt. And when that client is in the room or you're on the phone with that client, it's so important to pick up on those cues and know your client and then just take a pause and say, do you understand this concept or do you, and it's okay if you don't, because a lot of people don't understand, you want to make them feel comfortable with that. And so just kind of making sure that you have the flexibility to pivot but then also being transparent. I think being transparent is very, very important when you are going over their portfolio performance, when you're going over trade activity, when you're going over all this information. And there's times that it's not fun. You know, you're underperforming. 
everyone underperforms at some point. And, you know, those are the times where I think it's extra important to be transparent. This is why we underperformed and this is our position. This is essentially our stance. And I think the clients appreciate that. They appreciate that you are in trust that way and just being really empathetic. You know, they're going through different emotions. They have a different perception than maybe you do. They grew up in a different time than you did. And just trying to fully understand where they're coming from, taking a pause and kind of get engaged as far as how are they feeling? Are you feeling emotional about this volatility? And just being really empathetic and understanding and kind of, you know, just normalizing their behavior and making sure that they know that either their lack of understanding or their emotions, it's okay. It's normal. So I think that all of those things are so important. So how about kind of on the flip side of that, what do you think are the qualities that makes a good client? So I would say that a lot of times clients will apologize to me if they call me or they email me. I'm so sorry to bother you. I know you're busy. I would prefer that. I want clients that, you know, obviously you have to earn their trust, but I want clients that are going to communicate with me because if I don't know or understand how they're feeling, then that doesn't really make for a great relationship. And so the clients that are reaching out, they feel comfortable reaching out and asking questions. It could be, you know, whether it's a concern or just a question about, hey, I noticed you made this trade. What's your thought process? I love that interaction. And on the contrary, it's not the clients that you never hear from because I think that having that relationship is so, so important. So it's the clients that interact with you. So Paula, when you were here at CLS Investments, one of the hats you wore was, of course, director of research. So you managed analysts and you hired a lot of analysts. So my question is, what is your advice for people interested in joining the investment industry? And let's make this a two-part question, particularly women interested in joining the investment industry. My advice would be to always stay eager and hungry to learn. And never, ever feel like a project or task is below you. This is so important. You know, you see this a lot. You know, you see, you know, after they've been in the position for three or six months, oh, this task, this is so tedious. This is way below me. They can learn so much from doing those tasks. They get a sense each time that they have a project or a report that's requested from their superiors they have an opportunity to see through the lens of those superiors to be able to determine what are they looking at? How are they monitoring client portfolios? How are they looking at the market? And it gives them an opportunity to see different ideas, but then also how can I make that more efficient? Always look for ways to make things more efficient because a lot of, you know, a lot of the younger generations, you know, they grew up with technology. They're very good at it and they can probably figure out ways to make things better or they might be able to add additions to these reports to make them more robust. So always look for opportunities to improve, make things more efficient. I would also say probably to look for mentors. So shadow people across the various parts of the industry, if you're not sure exactly what area, you know, you can shadow traders, portfolio managers, bankers, whatever it might be, and financial planners, and really you're going to build those relationships, have a better understanding of how other parts work, but then you're also going to be able to maybe pick a couple of people, invite them out for coffee, you know, get them out of the office and kind of take that opportunity to pick their brain. And if there's not a coordinated effort for a mentorship program, just ask somebody, Hey, would you be my mentor? They are probably going to be honored 
they're going to feel responsibility to educate you and take you under their wing. And so I think all those things would be my advice. With women, it's the same, but at the same time, one of the worst pieces of advice I got early on is to act like a man. It's like, no, no. what does that even mean? Right. (laughs) I remember she stressed, don't say please or thank you. Men just demand what they want. (laughs) And, and first of all, that's not true. I mean, I really appreciate it when a man says please and thank you to me. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) But it's also not being authentic to your true self. Right. And so I think, I mean, you need to be authentic to your true self. And the reason why we want the diversity of having more women in the industry is because our client base, our client base is, you know, half women, arguably more, you know? And so it's so important because we can connect with them on a different level and to be yourself, to be a woman. There are a couple of books actually that for anybody, I think these would be good, but these really helped me out. It is called Compelling People by John Neffinger and Matthew Kohut, and then Presence by Amy Cuddy. And what they talk about is that it's important to be your authentic self, but also to do different poses or adjust the tone of your voice, the loudness of your voice to make you appear a little bit more confident in in turn. Internally, it kind of makes you feel more confident. It's kind of a strategy that's psychological as well. And so it goes into a lot of detail about how maybe genders are perceived and different ethnicities, but it's really, it's a really good book. It just makes you more aware of how you present yourself. So I would recommend those books to anybody, but especially women. Interesting. So just one more question on the point of women joining the industry. So those are some really great tips about women who are interested in joining and becoming investors or or investment managers rather. But what about what the industry can do? Women are becoming more investment counselors and managers, but they're still underrepresented, especially considering how many women are investors. So how can the industry accelerate getting more women involved? You know, I think that one, the media doesn't help. You have these TV shows and movies where you have successful women being attorneys and doctors. And then the movies you see in the financial industry are usually centered around Ponzi schemes and corruption, right? But of course, I'm not sure how good of a movie that would be without some kind of conflict, but I think it could happen, make the conflict be their personal lives. But in any sense, these movies, you know, on the financial industry and like Wolf of Wall Street and and they're good entertaining movies, but, but they're led by, you know, aggressive kind of men. And I think that hopefully Hollywood or somebody else will put out some kind of TV show or movie where, it can represent a successful woman in the financial industry. And, you know, maybe they can have the drama be elsewhere instead of being a Ponzi scheme. (laughs) I think that would be interesting. But anyway, I think that just, and this would go for men too, just making sure that these young women entering the industry, that they have mentors and not just women mentors. I think women mentors would be very important. So that way they could kind of pick their brain and you know, be able to relate, but also just have a trusting male mentor as well, or several male mentors to just kind of guide them through. And it's just, it can be intimidating and challenging because oftentimes you can be the only female in the room. And it's just important to have those safe places that you can go, superiors, people that have had experience in the industry, both men and women. I think mentoring, it would be huge. 
Mm-hmm. It's true. Like pop culture doesn't do any justice. I was just trying to think like what movie kind of Wall Street-ish did have women in it. And the only thing I can think of is Working Girl with Melanie Griffith. That was like ages ago. And that even wasn't yeah. probably an awesome movie, but yeah. that's a good point. Yeah. It's been a while. All right. Well, let's address some of the common questions from investors. These are the ones you get every day. So this is like in your wheelhouse. So it's going to be home run after home run here. But first of all, of course, is, and you've already talked about it a little bit, we could have a recession coming. Maybe, maybe not. But, you know, there is evidence that we could. So should we still be investing in the stock market? So I've had several people. So as you're going through your outlook and you say probably a recession has become higher, people just, they hear recession, they pause like, what typically happens in a recession? I think, you know, that's probably something we'll talk about here, but, you know, you can usually guess that the market could go down lower. And let's say the market goes down 10, 15% lower they're like, well, why on earth are we going to ride that out? Why are we going to ride that to the bottom? Let's just take money off the table now. And the problem with that is we all know is, you know, making those drastic moves. You're essentially trying to time the market, right? You're trying to time the market and things don't always go by historical averages. And there are outside shocks that none of us see coming. And so if you miss, and there's been studies on this and this is one thing that I think would be good to reference. JP Morgan has this slide in their guide to retirement, and they talk about an investor that misses out on the 10 best trading days of a certain period. So an example. So if the study shows that, you know, there's a time frame between January of 2002 to the end of 2021, and they take a client that has $10,000 in that time period, the one that stays fully invested the whole time they ride it. And we had some fairly severe recessions. And in that time period, they stayed fully invested. They didn't try to time the market and their average annualized return was about nine and a half percent. So their $10,000 grew close to around 61,000. And then if they missed the 10 best days the 10 best days in that 20 year period, that's not hard to do 10 days. Then their annualized return was cut in half, lower 5%, 28,000. And so it was just really interesting is what people don't realize is that things flip really quick. And seven of the best 10 days occurred within two weeks of the 10 worst days. So those best days are real close to those worst days. And when you're in the thick of it, hindsight's 2020, you can look back at a chart and say, oh, that was the bottom. That was so easy to see. But when you're in it, you don't know that's the bottom. And you have a couple of updates and you have a lot of volatility. You have a lot of updates, then it's a head fake and then it goes back down. So people don't time the market precisely on both sides very well. It's almost impossible. And so you hurt your returns over the long term by missing those best days that are super close to the worst days. And so that's why we're staying invested. We believe in the long-term appreciation of the stock market. And in essence, I mean, you can make small moves. Like we're a little bit more defensive right now at Commerce. So we have you know, a slight underweight to equity compared to targets, a little bit higher cash positions, but we're still invested. You know, I'll reference that data 
And that seems to kind of resonate a little bit and help. Okay. So let's ask about bonds and fixed income. So you said you're getting this question a lot and we've had plenty of podcasts on it ourselves. So why didn't bonds protect investors like last year when they should have in a bear market for equities? So I think that, and we all, we all, we've heard this answer. We know the answer It's because of the aggressive nature of the Fed rate hikes in such a short period of time. But we have to take a step back and our clients don't always understand why still. You could say that to them, but you have to take it a step back. And I've learned, you know, as I'm kind of talking through this, there's actually a really good scatter plot that I use pretty frequently. And I'm going to describe it because I don't have a link to it, but it would be fairly easy to replicate. And I'm going to just give me a, a brief moment to explain it. So visually think of a quadrant. And think of the S&P 500 on the vertical axis and the bond market on the horizontal axis. So everything that's in the upper right-hand corner of that quadrant, it's positive for both the stock market and the bond market. Everything that's in the lower left-hand, that's like the sad quadrant. That's basically negative for bond and stock returns. And so we plotted over the last 45 years what the S&P 500 done, what the bond market has done. And most of the plots are in that happy quadrant, the positive for both. And then they typically behave as the stocks market's down. Typically bonds offer some type of protection, right? And so I show them the frequency of that. And then you look at the sad quadrant, it's negative for both. There's only two times that occurred, 1994 and then 2022 but the severity of it. So 1994 is real close to kind of the center. So it didn't decline that much, but stocks and bonds last year, it was just such a drastic outlier. You can see it very clearly on that chart. So I show them that. And that's really powerful because they can see how rare it is. Cause some people are like, I don't want to invest in bonds ever again after what I just experienced. And you know, then I reiterate the bonds are actually very attractive here going forward with yields at levels that they are. But in essence, I kind of go back to basics. And I think that's really important because we just assume clients understand, but I'll ask them, do you understand the relationship between bond yields and bond prices? And a lot of my clients will say yes, but if they pause, they're pausing because they don't want to look dumb or like they don't know what they're talking about or you know, they feel dumb. And so that's when you need to really step in with that empathy and say, you know, a lot of people don't understand bonds. And I've been explaining this a lot. I'm happy to explain this. And then you go into you know, how they have an inverse relationship. And then you talk about that. But really, I've found a lot of clients, even clients that really know a lot about the stock market, a lot of them really don't know a lot about the bond market. So going back to those basics, showing them that scatter plot, and then just even giving them an example, you know, like, an example I give is, okay, let's say you purchased a 10-year bond a couple of years ago, it paid 2%. Newly issued bonds are paying 4.5%, 5%. Which one would you rather own? What do you think you're going to be able to sell that old bond for? And then they're like, oh, okay. So I always give them that example. And that's, you know, a lot of people take it for granted that everybody understands that concept because a lot of people don't. We explain that a lot. So once I go over those things, then they kind of understand. So it's been helpful. So investors are also asking about technology stocks. 
How do you answer investors who are wondering why they still own technology stocks in the current environment? So for that, I will show them the quilt chart of the different sectors and how they flip. And basically, I will reiterate that we're under technology stocks right now. But you always get those clients to say, well, if you don't like the outlook, why own them at all? You know, And so that's where you just have to go back to preaching the diversification and how different sectors move very quickly. And so the quilt chart's really helpful. And then the other point I would just argue is that the valuations look quite a bit more attractive than they have in recent years. And so one would argue that, that it's not a bad thing to be holding some of these securities, at least for the long term. All right, Paul, I, I got to go back to bonds just one more time. So, you know, I think it's probably useful for investors to understand this. And, and you kind of touch upon this because, you know, bond market is kind of tricky to a lot of people. But how do you explain to investors why rising interest rates are good for investors moving forward? So the way that I look at it is that, you know, again, if they understand the recent pain and why it's happened, and you've kind of gone through those explanations that I already just went through, then you also talk about where yields are right now. And in the years ahead, depending on, you know, what type of bond you get, I mean, you can expect yields in four to 7%, let's say. And so we haven't seen that in years. So over time, those yields are going to be compounded given where yields were, let's say, real close to 1%, we'll just say. Investors are going to be better off and cumulative returns are going to compound and it's going to benefit and they're going to have higher returns five, 10 years from now. A lot of our projections show that you know the loss that we did experience in bonds likely will be recouped probably around the end of 2025, early 2026, just from the reinvestment. The older bonds maturing with lower yields are going to be able to be reinvested in bonds with much higher yields, and that'll be beneficial and be a good time for conservative investors again. So if that makes sense. So I got a question. So I think this is probably another really common one you get. So what are some of your favorite techniques for talking to clients who are starting with 100% cash and they're fearful of entering the market. How do they get back into the market? How do they get into the market? As you can imagine, so part of our hat is sales, right? <laughs> so, and we know it's in the client's best interest in order to achieve their goals, they need to be invested. And the sooner they be invested, the better. But there's times like this, especially when, let's say you're talking recession, you know, you're uncertain market environment, which what year is certain, right? But in any sense, it's times like this where people are more fearful and they just can't grasp, well, I don't feel comfortable putting everything in. And so that's where you have more of an adaptive type of strategy that they're going to be able to sleep at night, you know? So you use one of those techniques, either like dollar cost averaging, which is very common, but what's really been a good strategy that we've been using a lot is instead of just your traditional dollar cost averaging, we've been laddering T-bills. So T-bills, their yields have gone up significantly. So like a three-month T-bill right now, I think is yielding close to 4.6%. Six-month T-bill is yielding close to 4.8%. And so the way that we do it is we'll kind of ladder in T-bills that are maturing every month. And then that makes them feel comfortable because they're earning between 4 and 5% risk-free. But then also we're looking for opportunities. So it buys us time. So then as one matures, we can kind of determine 
hey, is now a good time? Do you feel comfortable entering the market? Or shall we go ahead and put it into a higher yielding T-bill? And so we kind of do that throughout time. And then eventually we'll work our way into the target asset allocation. And the goal is to be in that target asset allocation within a year. So we're keeping it fairly short. So, and, you know, sometimes we'll ladder it out to two years, but typically it's been inside of a year. And that seems to be a strategy that works really well and has resonated really well with our clients. All right. So let's switch gears to some of the questions that we like to ask all of our guests on the show. And the first is, so at Commerce, you are surrounded by incredible resources and ideas. And considering that experience, what is currently your favorite investment idea? You know, I'm going to be pretty boring with this answer because... Oh, come on, Paula. Shake it up. I'm going to be boring. And I'm just going to say... We want to get rich this year. (laughs) I'm going to say mid-caps. Overweight mid-caps, you know, they're relatively uh, attractively valued. They bring us a little bit excess return with a little bit less risk So than small caps would offer. And so we've been a big proponent of mid-caps and I'm overweight mid-caps in my portfolio. So nothing too riveting or exciting, sexy, but that's my strategy. Yeah. All right. Well, the next question is, this should be a fun answer because given now some of your health practices over the year, but a question we like to ask is professionally and personally, we all have an obligation to perform at a high level. How do you maintain your energy and your ability to perform at a high level? Well, first of all, I think sleep, nutrition, and exercise are crucial, which you know is kind of a given, but I try to find ways to automate some of that. So lately I've gotten into counting macros. And so I make sure I have certain levels of protein, carbs, and fats, and then I meal prep. And it's an automated way for me to make sure I stay on track. I'm eating nutritiously because there's times I get home. It's a long day. I don't feel like cooking. And if I don't feel like cooking, I'm probably not going to get something nutritious out. And so I've been meal prep and that has been very successful for me and my energy levels. And I've been exercising every day. And, you know, I think that it's important to just, we go through kind of this decision fatigue from the day to day. So I feel like automating as much in your life as possible, picking out your outfits the night before having all those meals prepped. So I don't have to figure out what am I going to eat tonight for dinner? It's all already decided for me. And so it allows me to have more energy to focus on those decisions for my job day to day. That makes a ton of sense. All right. So the next question we've been asking is, so you have been around a lot of successful people over the years and they've helped you get to where you are today. So kind of in the, we like to think in the spirit of gratitude and continuous learning, who are some of these people and who you're professionally thankful for? I would probably say, so Bob Jurgovic was the former chief investment officer of CLS before he passed. He took me under his wing and just kind of gave me the opportunity to kind of learn from him. And he's the one that transitioned me from being a trader to associate portfolio manager. And then Rusty, I know you're not asking for this, but you're a huge influence. And so I started off pretty green when Rusty started as chief investment officer. And I learned a lot from you, Rusty. So as far as learning things from a fundamental, quantitative, technical strategies, learned all of those from you. You were a perfectionist. You'd be tough on us, but it was good. You made all of us better. Could you say that over again? No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) kidding. So I could actually credit a lot of my understanding and the way I operate from you. Honestly, I've learned, learned a lot from you. And then 
you know, moving to Commerce Trust, the trust company is very different in some ways. And so just my manager, Kelly Jernigan, has been fantastic with taking me under his wing and kind of helping me understand some of the processes and procedures. And then his manager, Tim Michael, has been great, has been a good sounding board. They put me through a leadership development program. And I think that that was huge. And so I was able to have a mentor from our vice chairman, Buzz Willard. And so him and I got really close and was able to have coffee and and just really talk about a lot of different things and aspects of commerce and networking and all that. So all those people have been just great and crucial. I need to say something about that question real fast. So this question is actually probably one of my favorites since we've been having it on the podcast. And I just love it every time it comes up. But in these situations, we've had this a couple of times, it is a little awkward because obviously Paul and I worked together for a while. It's almost like it feels like if she says anything about me, it's like it's really awkward. And it's even worse if she doesn't mention me. So it's like a no-win situation, it feels like. But but actually, this question is a reason why I was thinking about Paula, because I was just thinking about people who I've been thankful for professionally. And I know in my CLS investment experience, you know, Paula was director of research. She was really my right-hand person on so much stuff that kind of insurance. It's like, you know what? I should have Paula on the podcast. So anyway, I just wanted to say that about that question. So thank you for your comments. Yeah. All right, Paula. Well, one more before we let you go. And that is, do you have any recommendations for our listeners on content that you're consuming? Books, podcasts? I do. So some of it, I feel like it's probably been really widely touted. So it's not going to be any new ideas like Psychology of Money by Morgan Housel, Atomic Habits by James Clear, and then Tiny Habits by BJ Fogg. And so that kind of corresponds a lot with Atomic Habits. It's very similar. And it just kind of talks about habit stacking and being able to essentially figure out little ways to reward yourself. Like for instance, even if you do a push-up, you know, get up and jump up and down or do something that kind of tricks your brain into thinking it's its own reward. And that's just kind of a very brief synopsis of that. But of course, you know, as far as blogs, I love Ben Carlson, Wealth of Common Sense. I still read him all the time and then listen to his podcast, Animal Spirits with Ben Carlson and Michael Batnick. And then, of course, the podcast with Ryan, <laughs> The Weighing Machine, Weighing the Risk, of course. Uh, Standard Deviations now. Thank you. So those are all really good. I'm sure listeners are listening to all of those if they're listening to this. There is one book I started, so I can't tell you if it's good, but it has really good reviews. And I don't know if you've heard of it. It's called Can't Hurt Me by David Coggins. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. That hasn't been getting great reviews. Yeah. And so I've just started it and I'm very excited to read it, but it's about pushing back limitations. And so he started off in poverty, prejudice and overweight, depressed. And then he became one of the top endurance athletes, went through elite, you know, Navy SEAL training. And it's basically how he believes that, you know, we only live up to about 40% of our capacity and how we can kind of break through those limits. And so to be determined, but I'm very excited about the book so far. All right. Well, Paula, thanks so much for coming back onto the show. It's been really great to see you and chat with you and catch up. Tell us how can listeners stay in touch and learn more about what's happening at Commerce Trust? Easiest way is to visit commercetrustcompany.com. And we have all our podcasts, commentary, videos from our chief economists, all available there. 
Paula, I have one last question. So we were sort of talking about this before we started recording, but I think if people knew you were based in Kansas City, I think a lot of people would have this question, is what is the best barbecue in Kansas City and why? I am going to say Jousting Pig. Jousting Pigs. So it's a smaller dive type of place. It has fantastic barbecue. They did have three locations. One right by my house had closed, but then they have several other locations that's in South Kansas City. So excellent. When you live in Kansas City, are you required to have an answer for that question? (laughs) Because I bet you get it all the time. It actually can get kind of controversial amongst the residents here because people argue. (laughs) You hear all kinds of answers. And Q39 is very, very popular, but I would say still one of my favorites, but I love jousting pigs. But if you ask somebody from Kansas City, almost everyone's going to have a different answer. It's kind of interesting. Yeah. You know, one time on a trip to Kansas City years ago, in three days, I had a barbecue at six different places. So oh, that really? was that was a pretty good three-day stretch. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I didn't really feel awesome on the drive back to Omaha, but I don't know. I it was sure fun when it was happening. I don't know why, you know. <laughs> Well, Paula, thank you for your time. It is really fun to catch up and hear about the stuff you're doing and the impact you're making. And I can't wait to talk to you again, particularly when you come back to Omaha. Yes. Well, (laughs) thank you both for having me. And it was so good to see you both. So miss you both. Me too. All right. Well, that is going to do it for this week. Rusty, take us out with your final words. Invest well and be well. We'll be back soon. Thanks for listening to The Weighing Machine. And hey, if you like this episode, please remember to subscribe. And thank you for your time and trust in Orion Advisor Solutions. Thanks again for listening. Robin and I truly appreciate you giving us some of your valuable time. We hope to provide you in each episode something you can use in conversations or making decisions or both. If you like this podcast, you might also like some of our sister podcasts at Orion Advisor Solutions. First, we have the Wang the Risk podcast, which I host monthly. On behalf of Orion Risk Intelligence, this is where we consider various market scenarios regarding top-of-mind concerns among financial advisors and investors. Next, we have one of the top-rated and most popular podcasts in the financial industry, especially when it comes to behavioral finance, Dr. Daniel Crosby's Weekly Standard Deviations podcast. And when it comes to all things fintech, we also have the bi-weekly The Fuse Show with Ryan Donovan and George Figuera, two of the funniest guys in the industry. You will learn something and laugh in every episode. Last, when it comes to more content, including commentary, videos, and other resources, please check out the website, orionportfoliosolutions.com, go to the research drop-down menu, and go to the Financial Advisor Success Hub. Thanks again, invest well and be well, and we'll talk to you next week. The Weighing Machine is hosted by Rusty Vanneman, Chief Investment Strategist at Orion Advisor Solutions, and me, Robin Murray, freelance writer and editor. If you have feedback or questions about our podcast today, please send us a note at rusty at orion.com. All opinions expressed by Rusty Vanneman and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and don't reflect the opinion of or endorsement by Orion, its affiliate subsidiaries, and its employees. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for legal, tax, and investment decisions. The opinions are based upon information that participants consider reliable.